Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Brandstands. Here are some announcements for you before we get started. We are continuing the round robin, and today's episode that we're featuring is the How to Glow podcast with Kayla Levin, and I'll play the promo at the end. I want to tell you that I linked the episode with Dr. Jessica Rhoda in the show notes. We reference her at the beginning of the episode. Also, the feedback from last week has been incredible. Thank you so much for listening and appreciating that episode. I will definitely look into doing more episodes of that kind. You are welcome to join the discussion group as always. I love when there is conversation happening there. I encourage you to follow the show and leave a review if you enjoy it and help spread the word. We are a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll probably enjoy the other podcasts on the network. Before we get started, I want to mention if you stick around until the end, you'll find out what's coming up. Without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome back to The Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Dr. Ayala Fader, professor of anthropology at Fordham University. She's also the author of award-winning books, Mitzvah Girls, Bringing Up the Next Generation of Hasidic Jews, and Hidden Heretics, Jewish Doubt in the Digital Age. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ayala. So good to have you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Before we get started, I want to thank Dr. Michael Berger for introducing us. I'd like to also introduce this topic by saying that it's a new topic to me. And the only reason I really learned about this subculture in the Jewish community is through the Shidduch initiative I've been working on trying to set people up. And then I started hearing about some individuals who are totally from where they look from, but then they don't believe in God. And that was a shocking, by the way, type of description of someone when you're describing how tall they are, what they do for a living (laughs) and where they're from. It took me on to a journey. Some of our listeners have reached out and I decided we have to do something on the podcast to talk about it because it's a secret society. And that's what we do on this podcast. We talk about the stuff that we don't talk about in our communities. It's such an honor to have you. Thank you so much. My first question will be, Share with us, please, what your background is. I know it's not growing up in the ultra-Orthodox community and then writing about it. So I find that super interesting, and I can't wait to dive into all my questions for you. Sure. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I went to a reform synagogue and public schools my whole life. Our family was very Jewish-identified, but not halakhically bound, I would say. And I raised my own children like that. They went to a Chabura Hebrew school. They had bar and bat mitzvah, but we don't belong to a synagogue. And I often think of my work, my own research as a kind of Jewish practice that I do. Tell us how you decided to focus on these topics and how did you discover these topics for your research? So I began to do research in Haredi or ultra-Orthodox communities in Brooklyn in my dissertation research. And that There are a lot of complicated reasons that I think that I began that project. I was studying languages and children, and I saw there was very little work on Yiddish in among Hasidic Jews. There was work on, you know, Yivo Yiddish, but not Hasidic Yiddish. So intellectually, that was interesting to me. But I also think I had a certain kind of nostalgia for a lost past of my family that I didn't know very much about my extended family from Europe. When I began the research, 
as part of my dissertation research, I soon realized that the women, the teachers and the moms that I was meeting and the little girls really had very little in common with me, much less than I thought. We disagreed on many, many things. And yet they were super generous. And I had a wonderful experience doing the research and I learned all kinds of things, including Yiddish. And that was the basis for my first book. When I finished that book, it was a wonderful experience, but it was also a challenging experience. It really forced me to consider my own Jewishness in new kinds of ways. And I will say that women were so generous to me opening their homes, but they were also hoping that they were doing a little bit of outreach to me, not, not formally, but they hoped that their example would encourage me to be more religious. I followed many of the life cycle points that my research consultants followed. I got married during the field work. I had my first baby. And so when I finished that project, I thought, well, I'll write one more paper about these Hasidic bloggers that I'm seeing, and then I'll start a different topic. I'm going to study Jews and the arts and secularism. But when I started to interview, actually, the first person I interviewed was Shulam Dean. I realized after talking to him that not only were there these bloggers, but there was a whole world of people who kept practicing ultra-Orthodoxy. They were married and they had children, but they had had certain crises of faith. And around that time that I was beginning that project also, there was a huge city field, Asifa, the Asifa against the internet. And those two things coming together, I realized it was a turning point of some sort in the ultra-Orthodox world, and I couldn't not study that. So that's how I got involved. And just to add to your topics of interest, my background is in the arts, and that's how I started podcasting, was giving a platform and a voice to Jewish women in the arts and entertainment. That's really interesting because I have a colleague, Jessica Rhoda. Jessica Rhoda, we had her. (laughs) (laughs) And in some of the work I'm doing now on Jews and public health, I see that Instagram is a really fascinating platform for women of different levels or different orientations to being from, to connect in all kinds of ways, inspirationally, in terms of friendship, in terms of consumption of products. So It's a really interesting moment, especially for Orthodox Jewish women, I think. And there has been an Asifa recently that has been very triggering to women like me. And I'm sure you have what to comment on that. Yes. First, I thought like, oh, yes, these two Asifas, one for Hasidic women and one for, as Hasidic women think, the more modern women are not at our level. But these two different, one in Yiddish, one in English. I was like, maybe I don't need to go. Maybe I've learned everything. Well, of course, that's not true. I was really interested to see that rabbinic leadership was still aiming a lot of their critique, especially of smartphones, at women. Actually, somebody wrote to me and said, you're wrong. It's not mostly at women. We've had a lot of success with men. And I've heard very mixed, very mixed reports on that. But I do know that the internet is not like television. You can't just outlaw television or, you know, forbid people from renting. I don't know if you are old enough to remember this, but VHS, right? And so it's so critical to business and it's so privatized in some ways, you know, to have the internet in your pocket on a smartphone. So it's interesting to me that rabbinic leadership keeps trying and keeps naming the internet as this really dangerous thing that only women have the authority in terms of their homes to kind of control. And I, I'm always interested when women are given authority and some of the analyses that I've sort of, after listening to some of these, I've seen that 
women are given authority even to bypass their husbands, but never to bypass the whole hierarchy of male authorities. So it's a, it's a kind of a different way to think, engage women on the same page as leadership. And, and, you know, there's lots of other things going on. There's COVID, there's many other issues. And, and I think the particular Asifas now, I'm sure were a response to some of the Instagram. There were a lot of businesswomen, orthodox businesswomen on Instagram and people like you, like podcasting. I think it was a kind of unremarked area and it's grown. People have so many followers and it's big business. And it seems to me like there's efforts to kind of control it. Not necessarily outlaw, but control. Let's dive into hidden heretics which is, as you coined the term, double lifers. By the way, that's not my term. That's it. Well, double lifer kind of is, but people said to me, I'm living a double life. And at first I heard the term reverse Murano. And I know in, in Israel, there's a similar category, the Anusim, the kind of forced. But people use that term frequently. I'm living a double life. So that's not my term. But anyway, go ahead. Well, you use it as a term in your book. Tell us a little bit about this concept. For anyone just like me a couple of months ago, never heard of a subculture in our community. Yes, that's interesting to me that you haven't heard of those. I actually... I've heard of atheists and off the derech. So that, that's clear. You have that. But then you have the people who may look or be firmer than me in so many different ways. Yes. And then they don't believe in God. And for me, that that's my basis. That's what I run on, my energy source. Of course. So let me clarify that a little bit. So what was really interesting to me was there were these men and women that I was meeting who were married, who had children, who didn't feel like either they were afraid to leave or they didn't want to hurt their families, or they were afraid to lose their children. So they were in this in-between place. Like they themselves had changed dramatically in terms of their interior, what they believed in, but they couldn't actually make certain changes to their lives. Overall, this is a study, this book is a study of religious doubt. But what I learned was that there were many kinds and levels of religious doubt. And many, many of the people that I met actually do believe in God. And there's all different kinds of Yiddish and English and Hebrew terms for different ways of having certain kinds of disbelief or certain kinds of doubts that are different from the kind of doubt that actually defines faith. So one of the things I talked about was that there are two kinds of doubt. There's a doubt that every believing person any if any kind of religious tradition actually struggles with their whole life. It's not that being a religious person is easy. I think non-religious people sometimes they go, oh, it's just blind faith. What I've seen is that there's a struggle, that there's a lifelong struggle to maintain and build and trust in Hashem and all of those kinds of things. It's not easy. But the people I was working with had such strong doubts. And basically, most of them explained that what really changed for them was they no longer believed in Matan Torah, that they no longer believed that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people literally at Mount Sinai. They might believe all kinds of other things. They might still believe in God. They might still believe in a kind of more historical sense of Orthodox Judaism, that it's true, but that certain things, that it was written, that the texts were written by people or that there are historical explanations. They might believe all different kinds of things. Some were agnostic and not atheist, and they made very clear to tell me about that. Many said they were still spiritual, especially women, but they didn't believe that the Torah was the word of God. And they especially didn't believe 
that rabbinic leadership were the people who had the right to in- make the rules for them because they didn't believe that not all, but some, many didn't believe that rabbinic leadership were the authentic mediators for what God wanted from them. And so that's a big span. I call it a continuum of life-changing doubt because it's the doubt that forces you to actually change who you are and who you think you are and what your place on earth, what the meaning of your whole life is. But because they were married with children and their parents lived nearby mostly, they didn't feel that they could disrupt their life in the way so many OTD people do. What about somebody who's not married? but maybe looking to get married and doesn't believe, let's say, in Matan Torah, but they're so comfortable in their lifestyle and they want to make their family happy and they want to marry somebody who looks the part as well. They technically have that option to just go off and or just be more modern. Right. Well, that's always the interesting question. I, I know that a lot of modern Orthodox Jews used to ask me, Like, why don't they just become modern Orthodox? Like, why don't they just join our shuls? And I think you've hit on a really important point, which is that Haredi Judaism is not just theology. It's not just interpretation of religious texts or certain kinds of religious practice. It's also a way of life, as you say. So it's an aesthetics. It's a sense of what you eat, what tastes delicious, what sounds beautiful to you, what looks right to you. And what I found super interesting was most of the people that I was working with really loved ultra-Orthodox life. Many were Hasidic and they really loved participating in many of not necessarily the prayer or the obligatory rituals, but like, you know, meeting the lifestyle. Yeah. And the closeness of the families. I, I think one of the most surprising things for me, and it was very humbling, was I sort of assumed that people who were living double lives would want to be more like me, that they would want to live a more secular lifestyle, whatever that is, or just culturally Jewish lifestyle. And I think there was a lot of ambivalence there. I think they were critical and rightly so to some extent, like critical, like, well, your life, you know, you don't have necessarily, I mean, we're, our families are close, but you don't have necessarily the kinds of extended family networks that we have where people will help you on every level. It was, so I thought that was really interesting. So for the single person, in my research, most of the single people, unmarried people who had that kind of life-changing doubt Many of them did leave. And it's interesting that you're talking about people wanting to make shidichim with other people like that. There are categories for those kinds of people, like somebody who's, I guess, not necessarily cool Hasidish. I think that's more about a certain orientation to halacha. There are all these new categories. There's modern Hasidish, modern Haredi, new Hasidim, new Haredim in Israel. So there's, I think there's a lot of kind of experimentation and diversity within ultra-Orthodoxy about different ways to live life. And so that doesn't surprise me that there might be single people who want to remain, but they want to find a partner who has a similar kind of, let's say, more relaxed attitude to certain kinds of chumras or like stringencies that certain Orthodox groups demand as a way of living a certain kind of Orthodox lifestyle. But the modern Orthodox way of life I think doesn't feel authentic. That's what many people told me. It doesn't feel authentic. They don't sing the same way. They don't have the same kind of emotional expression and connection to their communities. And many of of the people who had these kind of life-changing doubts got sent to therapists. That's part of my book too. And I'm happy to talk about that. But most of the therapists were either yeshivish or modern Orthodox. And, And they were 
interestingly, also discussing that there was a just a really interesting discussion on Facebook recently from a life coach who's, I don't really know what kind of orthodoxy he is, but he clearly had been kind of engaging with some of the issues in my book around therapy and who seems to have when mental health is a kind of explanation for religious doubt. And I was interested and kind of glad to see that being taken up. And that was my assumption always. I have a few categories in my mind that justify leaving the faith. And it's usually abuse or being in aguna or other traumatizing events where the system and the, the religion failed you as a person. And there is no space for you or being gay. Right. I mean, that's totally true. But the people that I worked with were really, they really wanted to make the case that for many of them, they were actually quite elite in their communities. They had not had traumatic events in their lives. You know, their parents would come up to them and say, were you sexually abused? And I didn't know. Like, what happened to you? What trauma did you have? And for many of them, it was simply intellectual exploration and an individual deciding, I can no longer believe this narrative that I'm being told, this theology. So that's very interesting, which makes me wonder, is this a unique issue to the ultra-Orthodox community? Because modern Orthodoxy is so much more open-minded and there is this acceptance of, let's say, yoga and all and going to secular colleges and just knowing and acknowledging there's science and there's wisdom in the world that doesn't come through Torah necessarily, but it's valid and it's okay. Versus a society that is totally closes everything off and says that's just not kosher and it's dangerous and it's evil. I actually think that's a modern Orthodox prejudice. And I, I don't think that's true. And I've, I've heard from many people that there are more people living double lives among the modern Orthodox. I don't know if that's actually true. But for sure, of course, ultra-Orthodoxy has many more stringencies and boundaries that you're not able to cross, but it's also changing in lots of interesting ways. And there are people who can go to college, especially once you're married. Marriage, of course, is younger than in the modern Orthodox community, but still there are, I think, changing avenues for how much or how little you can be engaged with non-Orthodox Jewish life. I don't know. I, I think I was surprised. I thought, as you did, that probably there would be fewer people who who felt kind of disjuncture between what they believed and what they practiced. But I have not heard that to be the case. And I don't know that it's an issue of access so much, of access to knowledge necessarily. I do think that the internet provided certain avenues to knowledge. But more than that, I think the internet provided another group of people who were thinking like you and were admirable. One woman said to me, like, online, I met all these people and I really admired them. They were so smart and they had the same doubts I did. So then I I knew I wasn't crazy or sick or that there was something wrong with me. I think that kind of interaction with other people is so critical, even more than reading someone like Richard Dawkins, the confirmed atheist, or um, believing in evolution. So I don't know that we can simply critique ultra-Orthodoxy for being maybe too rigid or not allowing people to explore enough. There's certainly critiques of that in the community, and the people I work with definitely make those critiques. And there's that whole movement to provide boys with more secular education now. 
It's been a very political hot button issue among Hasidic Jews in New York City. But I haven't, I don't know that modern orthodoxy is any different from ultra orthodoxy, which is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Yes, but also in your defense, <laughs> this has happened in history before. We, we've had other doubters talk about this before, way before social media. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And that was real. That's a really important part of my book also is that people talk about digital media as like this new thing. And we're talking about new Haredim and all of those things. But a lot of the people I worked with directly correlated their kinds of doubts and critiques of their Orthodox communities and ultra-Orthodox communities as having a historical precedent, specifically in the Haskalah. And they called themselves masculine. And there were debates online where some journalists would say, these people are calling themselves masculine. They're not even at the level of masculine. Like, how dare they? But the people I worked with were really sincere in thinking that Orthodox Judaism had taken a misstep or gone on the wrong path since coming to the U.S. and since, I would say, the last two decades, really, and that the stringencies were not necessarily part of what constituted Orthodox Judaism or the isolationism. I, I quote one person in my book. He says, don't tell me that I can't talk to Goyim and don't tell me that if I look at a woman, I'm going to want to have sex with her. Like, I'm a, an adult. I can make certain decisions for myself and I don't need all of these kinds of protections in place. I can still want and be an ultra-Orthodox Jew and still live in the contemporary world. I don't need all these boundaries. So I think, and absolutely there's historical precedents in terms of it's not the internet, but it's printing press. So there are moments, and I also connect this to Spinoza, right? And other, and Galileo and Martin Luther, if we're going to go beyond Judaism, where there are people who break out of what's expected and accepted and who are called heretics. And one of my findings is that you're allowed to be a heretic if you keep that information inside and to yourself. The minute you spread your heresy, and I'm using heresy in a kind of broad metaphorical way, what is not acceptable to the status quo, the minute you begin to create a public for that and spread that kind of your heretical ideas in whatever medium is of your time, that's when you become really dangerous. And that's when you're either excommunicated or you lose your children in the contemporary period, or if you're Spinoza, you're kicked out of your whole Jewish community. And so I think that's an important finding. And I think the link to history really enriches our sense of Jewish orthodoxy. Because so often contemporary ultra-Orthodox Jews in the United States both claim to be authentic Jews, and I think secular Jews see them guiltily as authentic Jews, both critically and sort of longingly. And there's a lot of ambivalence there. And I think historicizing orthodoxy today is a really important step to showing how these dynamics are not timeless and that even Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Judaism has a history, and it was a complicated history. There is the spectrum of heresy here, yes. because you said some people are very spiritual, some people just need more autonomy over the decisions right. they make in their lives. I am curious as to, are there people who stay in this double life, life, their entire life, or for most people, is it a transitionary state? Because let's say you do 
wear the mask and you walk the talk and you do it so you can raise your children the right way and marry them off. Once they're married off, maybe your spouse who wasn't flipped, who didn't join you and who's horrified by your by your behaviors and, and just lack of per- participation in her entire right. or his entire world, you know, how long could that stray a marriage or keep a marriage together? Yeah. So lots of diversity. There are people who never tell their spouse, even though their spouse always knows, but their spouse, the still religious spouse, they don't come out, but they don't come out. Right. Or they're not, they're not outed. And so there are people who stay living a double life their whole life. I think that's really hard. What I've seen more is a kind of, if, if the marriage is strong to begin with, I've seen a kind of mutually slow change over time. Like some of the people that were living true double lives over like a five to seven year period gradually relaxed some of their family's practice just in terms of like what clothing they wear, how much they shave or don't shave for women under their wigs, like that are very culturally specific to particular Orthodox groups. So slowly, if it's a couple, they can make those changes together. And there are people who begin to send their children to not their Hasidic school, but a more Litvish school. Like there are lots of ways to do that. There are some people who actually leave or get kicked out of their communities. From what I've seen, that is most often the case when their older children show signs of leaving. And I mean, everything is really in terms of, I think, leadership. The whole goal, of course, is to keep children from and to keep the community going. That's what the Asifa was all about. Like, this is a threat to our way of life. And that's why there's always in these kinds of events, the allusion to all the different historical events that have similarly disrupted or had the potential to disrupt this way of life. Expulsion from Spain, slavery in Mitzrayim. The Holocaust, like all of those things are kind of equated as the same because they disrupted from life. So when a child or a teenager shows signs of leaving or of not following the party line or not wanting to get married, often authorities come in quickly and encourage a divorce and the person is removed from their community, which is incredibly painful. Shulam Dean writes about that in a very moving way. But there are also couples where the couple is not on the same page and they make a kind of peace and a middle ground. And I mean, that's often the case for a man who has life-changing doubt. Women have much less autonomy and freedom to make those kinds of decisions. I think you're right. It's also an issue of life cycle. Like once the family has married off their kids, I remember one man saying to me, soon as we finish marrying off, we're moving to a different community where no one can watch us. My wife has agreed. But I will say he's still in his same community. It's hard to do that. And as lots of people told me, like, I'm comfortable where I am. You know, it's familiar. I, I'm scared to leave. And then there are people who do move neighborhoods. And that, it's always so interesting to me. It's like they move a couple of miles away, but they're no longer in a marked Jewish community, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. And I think that must provide a tremendous amount of freedom because people aren't watching you. I mean, that's one of the powers of an ultra-Orthodox life is that everybody is on the same page. So women told me when they began doubting, they would sometimes like wear slightly shorter skirts, slightly tighter skirts. They might wear different kinds of head coverings and their neighbors would come up to them. Either they would get notes left for them anonymously in their mailbox, like neighbor 
watch your level of sneeze or a neighbor would come up to you and say like, are you doing okay? I, I see. And for men too, I, I see that you're not wearing your long coat for a man, like you're wearing a jacket. What's going on? Are you okay? Can I help you? So with good intentions, not in a, but also an enforcing kind of surveilling way. And so I think moving to another neighborhood must be very freeing from that kind of surveillance. I'll use that term. You touched upon the differences between women and men having, first of all, access to or time and space to even go there and start thinking about these issues, but also doing something about it. Can you talk more about that? I knew that that was going to be the case because ultra-Orthodox life is so gendered, right? Men and women have such separate spheres of influence and, and socialize separately and all of that. You know, in my first book, I only talked to teachers and mothers and little girls and a few teenagers, a few teenage girls. I never talked to any men. And when I began this second project that became Hidden Heretics, I found myself only talking to ultra-Orthodox men. And I was shocked. Like, I didn't even know how to interact with them in the beginning because I had never talked to them. Give me an example of like... Well, I used to meet a bunch of men for coffee, partly to study Yiddish. And also then the Yiddish tutor would invite his friends. They were all in Kolel. They were all married and they would come and just hang out and have coffee in upstate New York. And, and I found myself like not dressed modestly because I don't usually but chatting with these ultra-Orthodox men. And I thought like, wow, because I, I had been kind of fearful of ultra-Orthodox men because I was worried I wouldn't know how to re react. And I knew that the women who were my hosts in the first project, I could greet their husband, but I shouldn't really interact much with their husband. That was what they did and expected of me. And so I didn't want to be disrespectful in any way. So here I am like chatting and having coffee with all these, in some cases, Hasidic men or yeshivish men. So that was surprising. But then I started to ask around, like, where are the women? And I realized from finally finding some, which took a while and a lot of networks. And sometimes people would call me up like, Ayala, I have, a, I have someone for you. She's willing to talk to you. Was that at the point of marriage where young men suddenly have an incredible amount of independence. Their lives are so structured in yeshiva till they get married from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. And it's the opposite for girls where they have a lot of independence in high school. They put on amazing plays. They go shopping in New York City. They take the subway. But at the point of marriage where for men, there's like an incredible amount of freedom and they can hang out and they have all these public spaces for hanging out in shul. And Thursday nights, Lil Shabbos, for women at the point of marriage, they're expected to be home and eventually to hopefully have children and be home and watching the children. And if they're not home, their husbands want to know why, like, where are you going? And so just in terms of structure, women had a lot less both access to physical spaces and they sometimes had no reason to go online either. Men had the excuse and the actual reason of, you know, I need a computer for business not all women worked. And especially once they had a number of children, they didn't need computers at home necessarily. I think that first, those first couple of years, some women do work in offices and they were able to go online. So access even to computers and internet was gendered. And then I found that the kind of life-changing doubt that men and women experienced was also gendered, whereas men were just devastated. I mean, it wasn't as if, you know, a lot of the kind of from explanation for this kind of life-changing doubt is, oh, you have tibus, you can't control your inclinations. 
But the men that I met who had this kind of life-changing doubt, they struggled so hard to keep believing. They were just at a loss. Some of them were suicidal. They were just devastated that their whole reason for living and their whole set of ethical principles and their sense of who they were, they no longer could believe. They tried to. Many tried to. So it's really a devastating sadness and a sense of loss. But many of the women I spoke to who also experienced that devastation were also angry. They were angry that they had given up some of the things that they wanted to do. These were really intelligent women and they had wanted to either learn like their brothers or they wanted to go to college and they weren't able to or allowed to and didn't necessarily want to get married right away and have so many children. But they had because they believed, because they believed in the ultra-Orthodox way of life. They believed it was the right way to be Jewish. And so they were angry and I think felt somewhat betrayed along with the sadness. And then even in terms of when someone did experience life-changing doubt, men and women had different experiences. Men still had more independence. You know, their wives were dependent upon them, often financially and just in terms of the community. Men could say like, this is what I'm doing you know, you stay home with the kids, I'm gonna, I'm going out. And wives didn't always know what their husbands were doing, or if they did, they didn't like it, they couldn't say very much because the husband is the authority in the home. But when women began to explore, let's say, not only online, but with new friends, life in New York City or beyond, or exploring different, different activities like bike riding and skiing, things that were not necessarily what ultra-Orthodox Jews always do, they were really afraid that their husbands would divorce them and that they'd lose their children. That was always the kind of specter haunting women. I think, and I don't have hardcore data on this, but I heard many, anecdotally, I heard this a lot, that men were more often encouraged to divorce when their wife was clearly doubting or non-conforming. And women were told, wait, he'll come back, just be better. Give him more space, keep raising the children from, and he'll come back. And for the still religious spouse, especially women, that could be really difficult because that meant they had to not only, as one woman said, like lie for my husband, but they had to keep up appearances, live a kind of life that they didn't want to live. One woman felt she had to kind of lower her level of frumkite to make it easier for her husband. And they became the authorities in their own homes, which I thought like as a Jewish feminist, like, great, you can make kiddish. But that felt wrong to many women and it was wrong for the children. And one couple had to explain to the children, like we've decided that mommy's going to make Kiddush and Tati isn't. And they didn't explain anymore, but they said, this is what we're going to do. But it was painful to the still religious spouse. So very complicated. Very complicated. And it's interesting that even with all this devastation and anger, they still stay in the community because yes. normally you have the rejection of the community. Right. The price is too high to leave. The price is too high. Exactly. And it's funny, the price was too high for children. Like, you know, they were all parents and they all said, I can't hurt my children that much. I think in a way that that was also different for me because they were all adults. They said, I can't hurt my parents. It would break my parents' heart. In from communities, people's parents are young, <laughs> younger than in my community. And they're often close by. I mean, my parents live close by to me, but that's not the norm. And they were very involved in the extended family is, is so critical. And so there was a lot of sense of like, I can't hurt my family that way. In addition to the usual fears, because leaving is very, very difficult. We know from all those OTD memoirs 
You know, it's it's not an easy thing to do. You talk a lot about the moral ethics or rebuilding those ethics and morals for oneself. You share a lot of personal stories of the volunteers who spoke to you. One of the more interesting, not interesting, but you talk about this woman and man who come from different couples who sort of have this affair. It sounds like it was a full-fledged affair. Can you talk a little bit about how those moral and ethical issues can impact? Do you know what happened later on? Are they still married to their original spouses or have they found that freedom for themselves? And the reason I ask is we recently did an episode on infidelity and Mm -hmm. you have agunas, the women who have been separated for years and they're no longer in any traditional marriage, yet infidelity is infidelity no matter what. So those morals come up in all kinds of ways. Absolutely. What was it like for you? So what I found was that people had to make ethical judgments. And I use that term very consciously because in the anthropology of ethics, there's been a lot of work on certain kinds of decision-making, but less on the emphasis that people have to make judgments in families. It's not always the autonomous subject, but that ethics happen in relationships. They're not in, in philosophy, for example, the subject is the autonomous subject. But we know that people are not really autonomous, that they're imbricated and enmeshed in all kinds of social relationships, the family being one of the primary ones. And so I was really interested and touched actually by the kinds of ethical judgments that people who were in these impossible situations made for themselves and the ways that they, and I wouldn't say rationalize, but the kinds of prioritizing of certain kinds of both happiness and fulfillment and doing no harm. Those were all very conscious decisions that people made, oftentimes through speaking with each other and talking to friends who were in similar positions. I think for the couple that you're referring to who were deeply in love, and I'd I'd rather not talk about the present for now, just to maintain anonymity, but who really found each other's soulmate and it wasn't to their marriage partner. I think from what they've told me, it was more moral to keep their families intact and to keep the lifestyle going, if you will, while maintaining a different kind of happiness for themselves in a private place that theoretically no one knew about. Of course, a spouse often has an idea, but their sense of right and wrong was not black and white. That's often ultra-Orthodoxy is painted as a kind of black and white in a positive way. Like people who are in my first book project, then goal was to teach children black and white morals. These are people living in gray morals. And when you're living in gray morals, as I myself think all morals are, not all, but many, you prioritize and you see where you're going to do the least harm and where you can do the most good. I mean, even by staying, these people living double lives had decided to sacrifice a certain part of their own desires and autonomy for their families. And once they had made that decision that I'm not going to leave, I'm not going to hurt my family and I'm not going to hurt my parents like this, they had to then negotiate, well, how am I going to live my everyday life? For a man, do I 
land to fill in every day if I, if it's meaningless to me? Like, how much do my kids have to know? When is it bad for them to actually know? What will they figure out? And I think I couldn't spend time. I only spent time with one teenager who's one of her parents was living a double life. And it was very, it was very painful for her. I mean, she stayed in her community, but kids are smart. You yourself know, since you have kids, like they're very sensitive to the kinds of subtleties that their parents are experiencing emotionally and intellectually. And so what I want to emphasize is that these were not easy ethical decisions. They were full-fledged like moral problems that people struggled with over the course of their lives. And uh, there were no easy answers. And I think for those who did have affairs, and there wasn't just one, there were many in terms of the one I wrote about was notable because it was long-term and it was serious, but there were many, especially men who were able to have affairs. And it was sort of a compromise. Like, this is how I can bear to keep doing what I'm doing. And as one person said to me, I'm going to take a, I I quote this at the end of the book, I'm going to try to take a little happiness for myself, even while fulfilling all my responsibilities. And frankly, I think we all do that. I mean, this is a very dramatic case of living double lives and ultra-orthodoxy, but I think we all make those kinds of moral compromises when we live in families and have children and have our parents nearby and no one is a free agent completely. And and those kinds of moral compromises are sometimes fraught with regret and sometimes with joy. Do you see anything changing or potentially being a little bit different? Do you see communities being a little bit more open, at least the leadership, to being more proactive in positive ways and healthy ways? Um, I do, actually. I think the field of firm therapy is considering a lot of the ways that they've talked about people who've left, people who've gone off the Dara. And I do think that there is a move to not necessarily encourage parents to cut all ties with a child who either, even if a child becomes modern orthodox, that was often grounds for cutting all ties. And I think, I think parents are sometimes less willing to do that, especially as it becomes more common and, and not just chopped up to that person was crazy or a drug addict, but as there's a critical mass of people who have left who are also successful, who've gone on to prominent careers and award-winning books, I think it's easier to say, okay, maybe nothing bad happened to them. Maybe this is part of life. Maybe some kids are born like that and it's nothing to do with my parenting or my gene pool and it, it shouldn't affect my shift for the rest of my from children. I mean, that's always the big fear. So I think there is among from therapists, and I, I went to a really interesting conference of from therapists where a modern Orthodox therapist said very explicitly that his sister was OTD and Orthodoxy just didn't work for her because she was a feminist and there was nothing wrong with her. I thought that was really striking. And so I think there is a kind of opening up of some of the explanations for different kinds of relationships to faith and belief. I do know that this generation of ultra-Orthodox men and women are sometimes less willing to live by the kinds of stringencies that their parents and many of their classmates are expected to live by. I mean, the fact that you're getting that shit if request tells you something, that's really interesting. And even the rise of spirituality, I think, 
has given a kind of credence to the idea that you could not hold by all the theologies of ultra-Orthodox, but you could still believe in God and be a good moral person. Maybe that's pushing it a little too far. I'm not sure. But I do think that some of these new categories of like the cool Hasid or modern Hasidish or people who live on the kind of outskirts of more traditionally neighborhoods and areas like, you know, on the outskirts of Muncie and Airmont, some of those communities that are springing up, I, I do think that there it's a moment. And I, I wrote about this also, like there's a lot of dissatisfaction. There's economic dissatisfaction. I think there's a lot of criticism of rabbinical leadership. Once the European leadership died and there were all these political struggles over who would lead different communities, I think that kind of humanized some of the leadership. I think the sexual abuse scandals that have gone very public and some led by new Haredim in Israel, some of the activism, I think that has also made some of the population a little more critical. And I think the internet really is changing. I mean, obviously the internet doesn't change everything. It's not like this recipe for change, but I think it is opening up different ways of being from. And I think that's a very interesting thing to follow. Well, I'm a part of that journey and I'm studying it as it's happening. Yes. And it's fascinating. It's scary. There's a reason I was a little hesitant to approach this topic because there's this belief that if you start engaging with heresy, then you will right. be converted. So I had to ask myself and see, is this something I want to approach? But just by talking to you and reading the book, it seems like a like a journey, I don't want to make any general statements, but sure. it's it's not all or nothing and it's a journey and, and there is a lot to criticize over leadership and how orthodoxy has changed in the last two decades and since the Holocaust. And it does look very different from how it used to look. Right. Women's pictures, you know, Sarah Schneer, you had women's faces and, and now you don't have that. And Right. What is that from therapy? I want to go back to that a little bit. What are the tactics that are being used to keep people when people are saying they're trying to believe what, what's being done yeah. to them? I think it was very common. And I, I also talk about a continuum of therapy. I mean, there's a tremendous range of professionalization in many communities. And I'm going to say generally in Orthodox Jewish communities, like you have people who have, I met psychologists who have PhDs and psychoanalysts. And I met life coaches who haven't gone to college. So that's from therapy in my book. And that is a huge range. I think when people first have original doubts and they're afraid of those doubts or a spouse outs them, they often go to someone less formal than a real therapist, somebody with a, a degree, a social work degree or a PhD or even any training. And either women go to college teachers who they've been close with, or a man might go to his rough and ask him, or now there are all these life coaches that you can go and ask about. I, I will say that very few life coaches wanted to speak to me. I had a real hard time talking to life coaches from therapists who were very happy to talk to me. And I went to several of their conferences and it wasn't any problem in terms of access, but life coaches were less willing. I think in part because their training is less professionalized and they walk maybe a more fluid boundary between being part of the community and giving advice. I think, I mean, some people actually went to 
non for therapists. They went to, I wouldn't call them secular therapists necessarily, but they went to non from therapists. But from therapists are Orthodox Jews who also conduct therapy. And some of the from therapists that I talked to were like, there's from therapy is the same as regular therapy. My, who I am and as a Torah Jew has no impact on how I conduct a therapeutic session. But there were others who said, and, and they were well-trained, who said, as an Orthodox Jew, I understand some of the conflicts that these people are dealing with. I know what it means if you're not going to shave under your wig. I know the implications. You don't have to explain it all to me. On the other hand, one of the dangers of from therapy, and I, again, less with professionalized people who had training in how to conduct therapy and more in the less formal sector. Not that they weren't trying to do their best and really help people, but the therapeutic support that they gave was always framed by they themselves wanting to bring the person back to faith. I think a therapy session that is more traditional Western therapy is that the therapist no agenda. is not guiding, no judgment, exactly. And so I mean, to me, it was really interesting because it wasn't necessarily worse therapy, although in some cases it was, but it was a different purpose, a different kind of therapy altogether. It wasn't always framed as that either, but some people went to a mashpia, even if they weren't, even if they weren't Lubavitch, like they sought out other kinds of counsel because the idea was that somebody religious could help you regain your faith. And when that didn't work or when the person who was living a double life felt that the person was too invested in them regaining their faith or that perhaps, and I write about this too, that the therapist was then reporting to the person's rabbi, which did happen on a number of occasions where this like triangulation of care, where the person would go and talk to the therapist and the therapist would report back to the rabbi so that there was a breach of, of patient confidentiality there, which a therapist would not, a trained therapist would not allow to happen. But with somebody who was a little less formal, that was allowed to happen. Oftentimes, one of the real values of these friend networks online was that people would warn each other, like, don't go to this therapist. They're just going to drug you and give you like misdiagnoses and drug you, which did happen on occasions, like calling one of the, in one of the chapters, the person was diagnosed with a mental illness and drugged and in fact, the person did not have this. They simply had doubts. So that wasn't completely uncommon. This was a, what I write about was a very stark case, but it was not completely uncommon. But people would help each other, people living double lives. They would say, go to this therapist. I had a really good experience with this therapist. And therapy, when conducted properly, could be invaluable because it could negotiate between a husband and wife and like, these are the ground rules. Like you may not break a mitzvah in front of the children. And often parents would agree. The heretic parent would say, yes, I agree to that. So it could be life-saving and allowing a person to stay in their community. And it could sometimes even do more harm. And I think some of the explanations, I hope those are changing. I think they're still in the mix in terms of like, you only have doubts because you have tibus. Like that's a very... I think that's a false and very particular kind of explanation. It's a very particular idea. This validating and, and simplistic. Yeah. And it's also kind of based on a certain theology, like the idea that Judaism is, Orthodox Judaism is true. And if you don't believe it, you're, something must be wrong with your brain or you must have had some traumatic event. 
I mean, that's the kind of black and white that I think the people I was working with were pushing against. And my final question to you is, as a religious woman, you did grow up with Jewish values, Jewish identity, and you have you have your source of Judaism in your life. Has this research and your experience doing working on this project, how has that impacted your religious experience and beliefs? That's an interesting question. I don't consider myself a religious person. I do consider myself a Jewish person, though. I think that is that a culture versus belief system differentiation? I guess so. I think belief and ethics are part of what make me Jewish. And so I would be reluctant to say, no, it's just culture because culture is, for me as an anthropologist, are all of those things. Then in my book, you are religious because you do believe in God and you have a relationship with your Judaism. I'm not, I mean, what people always ask me, very from people always say, are you Jewish? And I say, yes. And they say, are you Shomer Shabbos? And I say, no. And then the conversation is over because it's clear. Or do you keep kosher? And so no is my answer. But yes, I, I am, of course, a Jewish woman. I think both of my projects, and I, I, to me, this is really a value of anthropology. Both of my projects forced me to have my own ethical struggles with what I consider to be the right way to live as a Jew, as a professor, as a mother, as a wife, like all of those things as a daughter. And I think it made it impossible for me to have easy answers. I mean, seeing the kinds of belief systems that mothers taught their daughters was very moving and made me think about how I wanted to be a parent. I certainly wouldn't want to bring my children, my daughters up, my daughter up in the same way, but it made me think about it and it made me articulate to myself, where are my differences? Why do I not believe in that? Why am I doing something different? And by the same token, this book and meeting all of these hidden heretics made me think too, like, what constitutes Judaism? What do I think about digital media as a parent, as a user? It's very similar to some medical decisions that we're having around COVID too. Like, you can agree with certain parts of like, yeah, people are using digital media too much. I do look at my phone too much. And so then you start to think, so we share these things but where do we differ? And what does that mean? And how do I, how do I account for that? And who am I responsible for? So I think both of these projects, and I I don't think that's unique to me. I mean, in some ways, because I work with communities that I share history with, it's especially close, but every anthropologist really struggles by studying a community that's in some ways, both the same and different from them. And I think that's the beauty of this kind of research is that you don't take anything for granted. It it forces you to be reflexive, which means to think about your own position in the world and what it means and how you could make the world better. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Ayala Fader, for joining us today. So, so enlightening. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) It was really my pleasure. It was lovely to meet you. Thanks so much for sticking around until the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I linked Dr. Vader's books in the show notes. So if you'd like to purchase them and read them, they are linked for you. If you do enjoy this podcast, please leave a review, follow the show, and share this with your friends. I always appreciate it when you help spread the word about the show. If you didn't know yet, I have a DIY podcast launch course. So you can launch your podcast on your own time 
and have all the information accessible to you. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll probably enjoy the other podcasts on jewishcoffeehouse.com. I link them in the show notes as well, so check them out. As promised, let me tell you what's coming up next. So here is what's coming up. I have a series on Aliyah, a series on the male perspective of Jewish issues, the gap year with a therapist, and how to protect yourself from being a victim of a scam. Also, we have no more silence. And as promised, here is the promo for the How to Glow podcast. Hey there, Kayla Levin here. I'm a newlywed and marriage coach for Jewish women. Working with married women around the world, I found that a happy marriage is so much more than a formula or luck of the draw. There are practical tools, paradigm shifts, and concepts that you can start using today to love your marriage more by the time you go to bed tonight. The work we do here will make your entire life better. You'll apply these tools in your career to finally get to the bottom of that load of laundry you've been procrastinating, allow yourself to take that vacation, or shoot for that goal. Pulling from experts across the mental health field, but always grounded and compatible with Torah wisdom, I'm bringing you the absolute best tried and true techniques that have helped my clients overcome their biggest life and marriage challenges for you to experience right here. Subscribe to the How to Glow podcast with Kayla Levin on your favorite podcast platform. I'll see you there. Thanks again for spending this time with me today and see you next time. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.